This is Called by God, stories of ordained women in the Anglican Diocese of Grafton. I'm Reverend Cathy Ridd and welcome. Today I'm speaking with the Reverend Dr. Desiree Sneeman. Desiree, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I'd like to begin by asking you to share a little of how it was when you began to sense God's call to ordained ministry. I was about 15 years old when I first experienced a call to full-time ministry. At the time, I was a member of a youth group. The Methodist Church had very effective programs for children and youth, and once I finished Sunday school, I joined the youth group. I was about 14 when I joined. I was soon involved in the leadership. I would say that I experienced a conversion at that stage and the effects that that had on me was it's as if my life came into full colour. I just remember I just remember life being marked by joy afterwards. There was there was a sense of of joy. So I think before that experience of conversion, I would have described myself as quite shy, quite withdrawn, very insecure about who I am and my place in the world. And the experience of conversion gave me a, a sense of confidence and, and certainly, certainly a life of joy. So that was the experience and the scripture that most described that for me was John 10 verse 10 where Jesus said, I came that you might have life in all its fullness. And I certainly think that at that early age there was an experience of life in all its fullness. And I remember just sitting in a church one night and having a, a deep sense that I was called to serve God, serve the church, and serve people. It unfolded from the experience of being involved in in youth in youth ministry. It was an exciting time to to be a young person in South Africa. It was at the time that Nelson Mandela was released. The Methodist Church that I was part of was certainly at the coalface of the fight against apartheid, the fight against poverty. And the Methodist influence had this strong vocation about solidarity with the marginalised, solidarity with the poor. So most white South Africans were kept separate from areas where black people lived. That was the effects of apartheid, was the separation of the races in terms of every aspect of their lives. But the Methodist Church probably disobeyed that to a large extent. And there, you know, there were visits between, between churches. Mm. And uh, so a strong sense of that call was solidarity and justice. And that certainly was influenced by a Methodist background. That is a very young age to sense mm. a call. So what happened next? Who did you speak to? How did you pursue that further? Well, at the time I spoke to mentors that were in the youth group older uh, than I was. 
and they spoke about their own experiences of life in the ministry. But I don't think it, it ever wavered. So I was 15 at the time. I exercised ministry and youth leadership positions. I have very positive memories of that experience of the clergy of the church taking me very seriously, investing time with me, trusting me. I, th I think that was a big factor was they would trust me to, to lead and be involved. I started a youth band at the time, for example, and yeah, thinking back, they did place a lot of, a lot of trust in someone that was quite young to be involved, was involved in youth camps and so forth. The, the Methodist Church at the time also had very good training programs for youth leaders. So for example, once a year there was a youth leadership training camp so I'd participate in that. It was a week's worth of training, workshops on different aspects of leadership. Regularly throughout the year, speakers were invited to train us on different aspects of church ministry. Um, so felt very nurtured at that stage. And three years later, I was 18 and too young to start the journey into the church, so I made the decision to study theology. So I studied theology at Rhodes University. I've since found out that it's considered a radically progressive liberal arts university. Uh, I didn't think it was progressive enough, but there you, <laughs> uh, there you have it. And that's where I think most of the support I experienced towards vocation came from was at university, being mentored by some of the best minds in the academy at that time. These were all people that had taught at Rhodes or Oxford and had returned to South Africa to lecture. So I was very grateful for the depth of their spirituality and the, the depth of their intellectual rigour. And they were very personable. They, they became friends more than lecturers, the theology department was very small, so it was a nurturing environment. Best years of my, my life, I think. I look back at those years in my early 20s, just with deep gratitude, and again, just marked by a sense of joy, just, just the sheer joy of being alive and being able to do what I was able to do. So... What, what were the challenges on the path to ordination? Were there any challenges? The most fundamental challenge at the time was that there wasn't a single woman in ministry that I knew. Nowhere in the time that I was living or anywhere else was there any, any woman in ministry. So that was, I would say, the, the number one challenge would be that there was, I couldn't find any other woman in, in ministry. And certainly later I did meet women in ministry, but they were all much older than, than I was. Most of them were retired. So the, the big challenge was no icons, yeah. no mentors, no, no other woman in ministry to justify your sense of vocation. The second obstacle would certainly have been 
of fundamentalist conservative Christianity. Uh, if you have a fundamentalist interpretation of scripture, how is it that I could feel called to the ministry when Paul says women shouldn't speak in church? So you talked a bit about what was life-giving, and especially your study. Mm. It lights up your face when you remember it. Mm. So, um, who were your biggest supporters on that path to ordination? Well, I met my husband when I was 19, so he was and still remains um, perhaps my greatest supporter. But certainly the lecturing staff at the theology department were great supporters on a number of levels. And the other theological students studying with me. It was an ecumenical theology department. So there was Methodists, Anglicans, Presbyterians, all studying together. And those friendships were nurturing and supportive. Are you still in touch with any of those from back then? Yes, we, we did become close friends. We remained close friends even after university. What's happened since is that most of us have immigrated. So my closest friend who's responsible really for bringing me into the Anglican Church, Doug, he's now the dean of a cathedral in Canada. I obviously emigrated to Australia. Another friend emigrated to Scotland. Another friend to, um, to England. Mm. So we're, we're all over the globe, yeah. yeah. Yeah, how did the move from the Methodist to Anglicans happen? Well, I I was accepted. I was an ordinand in the Methodist Church. Uh, I'd already been married for a year, and we became we were unexpectedly pregnant with twins, and that really confused the Methodist structures. It was a very painful time, and the only option left to me was to leave. And the main reason for that is. I've always experienced multiple vocations, and one vocation was to ministry, another vocation was to motherhood, and another vocation was to marriage. And the Methodist Church set up at the time only had space for one vocation. I wasn't able to exercise my other vocations. And my friend Doug, who was an Anglican priest at the time, made the introduction to the Bishop of Johannesburg and after a period of retraining I was ordained in the Anglican Church. What do you think are the biggest challenges facing women in ordained ministry in the Anglican Church in Australia today? The biggest challenge is patriarchy. So patriarchy's it's more than, than just related to men. It's a system that divides people and then puts people in some kind of hierarchy where one is better than the other. So the patriarchy in the church is and continues to remain a, a fundamental stumbling block. I'm not sure how how that can really be healed, to be honest. But if it's not healed, yeah, the church will die. Mm. Tell me about your doctorate. 
Okay, so my doctorate, my doctorate, the title is A Fully Human Spirituality. And it's a Christian feminist spirituality developed in Southern Africa. I was working alongside a group of women who were HIV positive and marginalized. Uh, the worst possible trauma that you could have in South Africa and the question I was asking is what does life in all its fullness look like if you are poverty-stricken, you live on the margins of society, you're HIV positive and you live a life of trauma. And my discovery was that it was in and through becoming HIV positive that these women experienced being fully human. So there's some quotes. Uh, yeah, there's some quotes that I could have used to to illustrate that. So the purpose was to give voice to women that were hidden or marginalised, was that their stories might be heard, and the stories are shocking, and I I wouldn't share them. I wouldn't share them anymore because I've watched other people be traumatised through me sharing those stories and perhaps that's not fair but yeah brilliant brilliant woman so they they found empowerment because they wanted to do something about the HIV AIDS crisis in South Africa and that actually initiated their community engagement so for example one thing that we set up was a not-for-profit called Sakupana which means seeds of unity and the purpose of the not-for-profit was to look after orphan-headed households. And these women experienced fully being fully alive because of their, their agency. Um, one of the women described how she was just living day to day, mostly for herself. And then after she became HIV positive and became a, a community leader and started assisting with all these projects, she felt she found purpose. Her, her existence had had meaning. So it, it in many ways reverses what we've been taught by Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, yes. because they never had the, they didn't have stable homes, didn't have regular food, were ill, and yet reached self-actualization. So incredible woman. It was a privilege to walk alongside them. So I interviewed them extensively. I had group interviews, it was a participatory research, I had one-on-one -on -one interviews. They also wrote journal articles and through listening to their stories and through my reading on Christian mysticism, I developed a, a model of what a fully human spirituality could look like or what wholeness looks like. What gives you joy in your ministry? I had to think about that question and the the answer that I've come up, what gives me joy is just a symphony of present moments. That's that's as simple as it as it gets. So if I'm swimming in Shaw's Bay and come up for breath and just looking around you, just the gratitude for that moment, you know, for example. 
yeah, so joy, the joy happens moment by moment yeah. in, in the experience of inner aliveness and gratitude for whatever the moment is. Yeah. If I'm with a with any person and something happens in the conversation, just gratitude for that person. Or, yeah, so encounters with people, encounters with nature, just symphony of present moments, you know, inspire joy, yeah. Desiree, thanks so much for sharing part of your story with me today. Next week, I'll be speaking with the Reverend Canon Sally Miller. Called by God is produced in the Diocese of Grafton as part of the celebration to mark the 30th anniversary of the ordination of women in the diocese. Produced and edited by the Reverend Kathy Ridd, copyright 2023.